she said, we got to get him on the ventilator. And my dad said, I'd rather have a 38 to the head. And so that was, that was pretty straightforward and very cognitive. And she had told us at the time, yes, he is cognitive and of sound mind and he can decide for himself, yet she was yelling at him. So uh, it was very did get, frustrating. Did she get mad when he said he'd rather have a bullet to the head than go on the vent? Did she get mad about yeah. that? Yeah, she was yelling, telling me he was gonna die, he could have a stroke, he could have a heart attack. She was just, just horrible. Absolutely zero bedside manner. Ready to live at the higher vibrations where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, Robin Openshaw here, and welcome back to The Vibe Show. We have been talking to families who've lost a loved one in the last two years. And today I'm bringing you another one of those stories. Welcome, Joanne Hunt. Thank you, Robin. I really appreciate you having me on today. Well, this is a very tragic story. Would you mind if I just kind of tee it up and sort of give the backstory so that we can kind of get into, you know, some of the details of the why and how and hopefully help some people who might have a loved one end up in this very, very sick system that you you found yourself in with your dad? Yes. Okay. So everyone, Jerry Welch, 78 years old. And if I understand correctly, for 50 years, he hadn't been to doctors. He hadn't gotten any injections. He hadn't taken any medications, which is really remarkable for Americans. Very holistic-oriented family. He's a father of five. Joanne is his youngest. Uh, he was a pastor for many, many years. Not so much, not very long as a professional pastor, but just as a lay pastor, going in and ironically ministering to people in hospitals was a big, big part of his life and his mission. Um, and he passed away on December 12th of 2020. So Joanne, can we go back uh, before the 12th of December, 2020? Can we go back to November 20th and what happened at 5 a.m.? Uh, well, um, dad being very active still and not retired, uh, does, did a lot of things on his own. And um, without even a second thought, he went out into his garage at 5 a.m. and um, decided to change the tire on their Suburban, on our parents' Suburban. And um, in the, uh, he said it was about a 60, 65-pound tire he was changing. And he was knelt down and the tire was propped. And I think he had his back turned to the tire, but... Um, the tire fell over on his foot and injured his foot pretty badly. Um, more of a bruise. I don't think there were any broken bones, but um, but he had to struggle to get out from under the tire. And he was. He told us days later. We didn't know about the accident for days, but um, he uh, he told us days later that he had been struggling to get out of out from under the tire and that he was screaming for help. And um, unfortunately, my mom was asleep, uh, so she didn't hear it. And being so early in the morning, I don't think any other neighbors were up. They were in a senior living neighborhood. So um, it was a very quiet neighborhood as well. So I don't think there were any passers by at 5 a.m. 
And so he managed to get out from under the tire and free himself. And I, all we can figure is that maybe he went into shock from the injury uh, because he, he stopped eating and he stopped drinking. And he started telling me, uh, I think when he told me about the accident was at Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, so it was at the 25th. So five days later, we, we had no idea uh, how badly he had been injured. Uh, just he's so independent. He doesn't ask for help. And, and uh, you know, nobody was the wiser. Did your mom even know about it? Uh, he told her later. Um, but uh, I don't know if she realized how bad. Uh, and in the state he was in, he had been caring for her for about a week because she was not feeling well. And um, a little bit under the weather. So uh, that kind of caused a bit of a spiral because she tends to cook for him. And so he had been kind of fending for himself and taking care of her and, you know, running out to get a bite to eat because he doesn't cook. And, uh, and so I'm not sure if, you know, normally my mom would have noticed when he stops eating and drinking because she would have been the one feeding him. Uh, but under those circumstances, I, I don't think it went as noticed as quickly. Yeah. So you, you feel like your dad's really failing at this point and he hasn't been eating and drinking and you end up taking him to the emergency room, right? But he didn't know he was going to the emergency room. Yeah, we, we did our best because he did not want to go to the emergency room. He was very concerned that under the, uh, protocols, uh, or the protocols at that time, even, uh, that, uh, he was concerned they would escalate that he knew that, and he did not want to go to the hospital. So we attempted, uh, to take him to a clinic to get IV. We attempted to take him to a, um, naturopath locally and, um, somebody that he has a lot of trust in. And, uh, and that naturopath said, well, if, if, if you don't get better soon, you need to go to the emergency room. Uh, so he, he did suggest that we take him. And so when we, we had to trick him, (laughs) we basically had to say, uh, what I told him was, well, remember that place where we went to get your IV, uh, we're going to go back to a place like that. And, um, at this stage he was very confused and, um, he did have his wits about him, but there was a lot of confusion. So he was kind of going in and out and almost acting a little bit like he had dementia. Um, and which was very unlike him being so independent. And like I said, not even retired. So he, he was running his own business and in climbing ladders and pulling cable. So this was very uncharacteristic of him. So one of the sad things about your dad's story is that I think had he, had this happened a year later, he would have known to go in and ask and say no way to the vent, which he did. He was adamantly opposed to the vent because we all watched what happened in New York and that people were being, you know, given sedatives and paralytics and being completely under and then all kinds of abuse happening in the hospitals. And so those of us who were a little bit, you know, paying attention outside mainstream media, we were aware there's something very, very wrong going on here and we don't want the vent. He knew that, but 
December of 2020 was way too early and none of us knew about remdesivir. So when they started wanting to vet him, actually he said something really strong to a doctor. A doctor was sort of bullying him, right? Tell us about that and what, what your dad said that he wanted that Trump, Trump had. Oh yes. Uh, well, um, fortunately in our situation, uh, his day nurse had called us. We were scheduled to talk to him on the phone and the day nurse had called and put us on speakerphone. And I heard his doctor, uh, yelling at him. And so I said, uh, hold on a minute. I want to know who's yelling at my dad. And um, the doctor then turned her attention to us and started yelling at me and my mom over the phone. And uh, she's like, I, I'm trying to get him to get on the BiPAP mask. He's refusing to get on it. And I told him if he doesn't get on it, we're going to have to put him on the ventilator. And I said, well, you're just trying to get, well, first my mom uh, just said, you know, we were just dealing with the fact that she was yelling at him. <laughs> And, um, and then as she's yelling at us, um, she said, we got to get him on the ventilator. And my dad said, I'd rather have a 38 to the head. And so that was, that was pretty straightforward and very cognitive. And she had told us at the time, yes, he is cognitive and of a sound mind and he can decide for himself. Yet she was yelling at him. So, uh, it was very frustrating. Did she get mad when he said he'd rather have a bullet to the head than go on the vent? Did she get mad about that? Yeah. She was yelling, telling me he was going to die. He could have a stroke. He could have a heart attack. She was just, just horrible. Absolutely zero bedside manner. And, um, and, and literally, and I don't use the word bully very lightly. Uh, I, I'm not one that passes that word around, uh, I know it's a very commonly used word right now, but I am telling you, she was yelling at my dad. And then she started yelling at me and my mom. And my mom said, can you give us some time to think about this? And she said, you don't have time. You don't have an hour. You need to decide now because he could die at any moment. And she just started yelling at us. And my mom was shaking and crying. And so I turned the attention back to, look, you heard my dad. Those are his wishes. He doesn't want to be on the ventilator. And you told us you're just trying to get him on the mask. So why don't we deal with that? So I said, you let me talk to my dad. And um, so they agreed to let me talk to my dad. And I said, dad, um, he didn't like the BiPAP mask and he called it the pig mask. And um, bless his heart, he was, he just didn't like it. It hurt, it, it had all those elastic straps and I said, well, dad, I know you don't like the pig mask, but they're, they're saying you need it because your oxygen is dropping. And, um, so would you please put the pig mask on for me? And he agreed. And, um, and so, uh, you know, then, then I immediately turned to his nurse, uh, in a separate conversation, uh, away from that doctor. Cause I knew that doctor was just belligerent. And, uh, and I said, I want to know who's advocating for my dad. Uh, cause this is unacceptable and, and there has to be, if we're not allowed to be there because they told us to go home and isolate. Uh, and I said, if, if we can't be there to advocate for him, who is going to be there to advocate for him? And so they did get us in touch with a chaplain who 
uh, spoke with us and got us in touch with uh, the advocate for the hospital, the, the patient advocate is what they called her. So you never were in his room. I'm not sure never. I realized that. They just, you. we were in the COVID hysteria. It was 2020. And so, yes. you know, in 2021, there came a point where they couldn't deny patients' families access to them, but they would limit it to one. And so most of these people telling me their story are not from 2020, they're from 2021. And some of them have been denied access to their family. And some of them were allowed one at a time and only during the daytime hours. I mean, all these are just ridiculous, arbitrary rules. Like, are you safe having a family member in the day, but not at night? Like, it makes no sense. But so you guys just kind of had to accept it because that's how things were in December 2020. Just can't fight the, the, you know, them banning you from yeah. even being in his room. It was part of the... Um emergency executive order here in the state of Colorado, uh, that if they test positive, that they are immediately isolated. Uh, if they're test positive, you know, positive with the symptoms in the hospital. So there were those things, you know, if you're at home and you test positive, they tell you to self-isolate. Um, but because they had run a chest x-ray and said that he had pneumonia, um, and then uh, about a half hour later, they came back with uh, your COVID test has come back positive, and now we're going to transport you to the COVID unit, and your wife cannot go with you. So my mom was with him up to that point. And then, which the logic there is very odd because she's already with him. Uh, and if he's tested positive, she's probably positive or whatever. <laughs> Who knows? Because the data out there is so inconsistent. But, um, but they told her, you need to go home and self-isolate. And um, they told her to self-isolate for two weeks. And, um, and they said, you will not be let back in the building. And so, so I had to just drive her home. We weren't allowed to go into the hospital. And they, they took them to a different location uh, because they said that the, the beds were full at that particular hospital that we were at. So they transported him and then put him in this COVID unit in the other hospital. And, um, yeah, so we were separated from him from that moment on. What, what was the patient advocate like? Because I, I, there's nothing more than a theory, but, um, I'm hearing these families of patients talking about a patient advocate who's paid by the hospital. And that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. And it seems like the patient advocate sort of gives the family a false sense of security I don't know that in 2020, though, they had all these patient advocates in the hospital. Maybe they did, but I'm being told stories of the patient advocate walking in the room and saying things like, we here at the hospital have a problem with how your family is behaving. It's like, well, how is that being a patient advocate? You know, I mean, it's just I, my point is like when the hospital pays you, are you really a patient advocate? What was your experience there? Was it was a chaplain or someone else? Um. We did have the chaplain and we also had um, somebody designated as a patient advocate. And both of them were, I would say, middle ground. Uh, they treated us with respect. Uh, they, the chaplain was very good to listen, to relay information. Uh, he did say, I will try to visit the COVID unit and see what state he's in uh, and, and try to give you know another perspective to the fact that, you know, my dad was all alone in this room. 
Uh, and we were allowed to do Zooms. So we, we did get to see the room a little bit through the Zooms. Uh, and so we got maybe one Zoom a day, uh, if that. And sometimes not that because they only had, I think the nurse assigned to my dad had, I can't remember how many patients he had assigned to himself. Uh, I think maybe uh, five or six other patients, um, many of them possibly going on the ventilator. Uh, I don't know for sure, but um, but my dad was the main one who was refusing to go on the ventilator that we know of. And um, because of that, they had to give him more one-on-one attention. Uh, they couldn't just leave him on a paralytic on the machine and let the machine do the breathing for him. They had to kind of monitor him. And, and so my dad being very stubborn and also being an engineer, uh, kept removing the mask. So they were having troubles trying to regulate his oxygen because he kept taking the mask off. Uh, but the advocate was really good to, what do I say? I would say at that stage, the advocate was genuinely an advocate for us and the patient. Um, I, I felt like they were doing their best to be diplomatic um, and try to, uh, in a sense, be a mediator uh, would be the way I would describe them. And so the chaplain did a really good job also of, of getting that communication across. So um, I think it was on day three that when they started sedating my dad, because my dad, and it was the night staff that did the day staff. Uh, my dad really loved the day staff and he would cooperate with that nurse. Uh, and they got along really well. Um, but but he, t- he told you something about what was happening at night. He told you yeah. that on the phone, right? Yeah, the um, I think it was on on day three when we talked to him on the phone. He said that they were building blood factories on his arm. He said, uh, "I don't know what they're doing. They're doing experiments on me." And you know, we talked to his nurse. The nurse says, "Well, the drug that they are that we've had to give him to treat the COVID will make him think he's hallucinating." Um, so we kind of chalked it up to, "Okay, maybe he's hallucinating this." Um, but he said, I, I'm not sure what he's referring to. He says, the only thing that makes sense to me is that they, um, they have to do a, a blood gas to check his blood because of the amount of oxygen. Uh, so he was on 70 liters of oxygen at hundred percent. So they were giving him the absolute max they could give him. And he was staying at about 95 to hundred, um, O2 saturation on the 70 liters at hundred percent. But the second he would pop that mask off, he, he actually figured out how to remove the tube from the mask. Um, so they would say that in a matter of minutes, his saturation would drop from 95 to hundred all the way down to 60 to 65. Uh, so it, his saturation would drop down very quickly. And the doctor said, well, because he keeps trying to pull stuff off, we began sedating him at night because he didn't like the night staff. And so because he felt like the night staff was experimenting on him, he was fighting them. And they said that he was injuring the staff and that he was pulling everything off and trying to leave. And I said, well, he's trying to leave because you're holding him against his will. And um, I said, of course, he's trying to leave. I said, he's going to fight you. 
And, you know, we talked to him about the fact that he hasn't been to a hospital in 50 years except to pray for other people. You know, he doesn't. So he's probably, he'd probably seen a lot of bad stuff because he'd been in the hospital seeing what they do. And did, did I write down correctly that he told you they're torturing me at night? He did. He did. And, you know, once again, we don't know. We don't know just because of what they told us that, that he could be hallucinating because of the drug and we didn't know what drug. Um, I know the one thing you asked me about a minute ago is that, uh, that dad had specifically asked for the drug that they gave Trump. And, um, and we're not talking about ivermectin. We're talking about, he said it starts with an R, right? He said it starts with an R. He didn't know what it was. We didn't know what it was. Um, but the nurse said, oh yeah, they're giving that to him. They're giving that to him. And, and, um, so my mom said, oh, Jerry, they're, they're giving you that same drug. They told us they're giving it to you. And he said, no, no, it's a package. It's coming from the president. It's, it's coming from the white house. And he kept saying, you know, he he just kept insisting that, that this package hadn't arrived yet. And, um, well, they had him on a psychotropic, didn't they? I mean, I'm, I'm hearing Xanax. I'm hearing Ativan. Do you know which one they had him on? Because you're a very inconvenient patient when you refuse to be vented. And so yes. they probably liked, the doctor probably liked her other five patients a lot better because Jerry is talking and having opinions instead of just laying there being paralyzed and sedated. So he's yes. he's on a psychotropic. And so you do that when you're on these drugs, you hallucinate and you you your cognition is way off. Absolutely. I did write down what they gave him. I, I don't have it in front of me now. Um, so I would hate to misquote that, but uh, they, they did tell us they had him on psychotropics for, um, excuse me, for the sedation. So um, we were very upset about that. And we told him, we said, you know, look, you're, you're dealing with somebody who is, is chemical toxin free for 50 years. He cleansed his body uh, they did a, a massive cleanse in the eighties. Both my parents did. And, uh, my dad talked about, I, you know, I know it saved my life to do this. And, and from that day on, he, he would not like, he wouldn't, he was off gluten. He was off. He wouldn't even take chocolate. He says, look, every time I have chocolate, it drops my immune system. He was very, very in tune with his body. And, Sounds like he's really self-disciplined too. And he only weighs like 135 pounds at 5'10 and he was a jogger at 78. He's still jogging. Yeah. He was, he was running about a mile a day every morning about 5 a.m. before he started his day. That was how he started his day at, at 77 years old. So um, in December of 2020, I don't care how much time you had put in on this subject. I think I probably had close to a thousand hours of research by then. I didn't know that remdesivir shuts down your kidneys. I didn't know that. I, I didn't know that either. And all we knew was that they said they were giving him what Trump was been had been given. And that's so he, he thought that was you know because he was a political conservative, and so he figured that was a good thing. And Trump mm-hmm. must have really smart people all around him, and I think he would probably be mortified by. Um, the former president continuing to push the jab into 2022 right now, but yeah, uh, you yeah. know, that's 
neither here nor there what I think of what Jerry would have said, but from what you're describing, the kind of life he led, he was so self-disciplined and, and he wants. Even, I mean, he probably didn't drink alcohol. He, that would probably be like a crazy thought to him. He didn't, he wouldn't even eat chocolate. No, my dad stopped drinking alcohol, um, in about 1988, 1989. Uh, and it was, it, he did enjoy a little bit of beer every now and then uh, with his Mexican meal that we're from New Mexico and he loved to have a bottle of beer with his Mexican food. But when he got ordained as a pastor, he made the decision on his own. Uh, and my brother had asked him, you know, why, why don't you drink your beer anymore? What's the big deal? And, and he said, you know, it's not that it's a problem to drink the beer. He says the beer is not the issue. He goes, it's, it's who's watching me drink the beer. Now that I am a pastor, I have to be more conscious of, of who's seen me do, you know, what. So he was, uh, he just, he loved people and he was very conscious of who would be observing his actions. And so he made that choice to eliminate alcohol from, I don't remember him ever picking up a bottle of beer again. And, you know, that's 30 years <laughs> Your dad is just, he was just exemplary. He sounds like an amazing man. I would have loved to have met him. Now he, yeah. um, you, you started to fight to get him out of the hospital and you were successful yes. at bringing him home. But what did, what did they do? What was it like to try to get him out of there? Did they resist that? And then what did they do as he was leaving? Because I believe there were some real changes in the protocol and the meds and how they sent him home that are, seemed to me to be pretty unconscionable. Well, uh, the way my mom and I put it is we had a bit of a bait and switch done on us, but, um, we had one of the advocates, uh, say to us, look, uh, they're going to fight you. And it, and it, because this, these patients are in their care and in their mind, if they leave their care, they're going to die. So they're going to fight you. They're going to fight to keep them in the ICU. Uh, so, uh, you know, he kind of gave us a, a little bit of a heads up with that and said, so, so just be aware that, that they are going to give you pushback. And so we went into a Zoom conversation with, we had the, um, I don't remember if it was the advocate or the palliative nurse, but it was one of the two. And um, I think it might've been the palliative nurse at that stage because the advocate had got us set up with a palliative nurse. And they were talking to us about the potential of hospice care to get him released uh, so that it wouldn't be us pulling him out against medical advice. Uh, so the idea was that we could continue to get him some form of care and not have it be under under the term against medical advice. So well, why did they tell you that that might affect his insurance or something? Like why were they in time? Yeah, yeah. And that was a concern of my mom because my dad was the only provider. Uh, and being a, being in business for himself, uh, no benefits, no, you know, he had insurance for the job. Uh, if something happened to him on the job, he would have been covered. Um, but outside of that, you know, this, this was the route, this was the only route that they knew. So my mom was really being careful not to have, uh, that added financial stress on top of everything else. So we were trying to figure out the best avenue to have him taken out and uh, still have that care continue. Um, so we did agree to hospice. They, they assured us the palliative nurse made sure 
to make contact with a, a wonderful hospice care uh, in our area that was designed to, they're, they were supposed to be designed for more than just making the patient comfortable, but also be willing to work with our alternative forms of care that we wanted to give him. So, uh, so that, that was the agreement that was made. Now the ICU um, doctor, or I guess, well, we had the doctor removed from his care after she yelled at him. Uh, they did say that she would still have to oversee his care, but that she would not be allowed to enter his room. She was made to sign a paper acknowledging that he did not want to be innovated. So, um, so we were fortunate that the advocate and the chaplain uh, really got that taken care of for us. And the chaplain also helped my mom get a, a medical um Advanced attorney, uh, yes. medical power of attorney, or or something along those lines, so that so my mom. Whose idea was it? You, what happened with your siblings? That one of the nice things about um, your your family is that you're you're all very united in how you yes. feel about the way COVID's been handled. Um, I'm sure you've noticed that most families are divided. Yes, my own family, my husband's family. There's the people who believe in the vaccine and don't want to look at anything else. And then there's the people who are like, get that vaccine away from me. And then lots of mm -hmm. families are, it's literally a no-fly zone where they've come to the conclusion, can't even talk about it with your family. We're all very much aligned in this isn't what dad wants and we're not going to force yeah. the event on him. And your Absolutely. siblings were really were really um, helpful in your case. There's some Sometimes the siblings are, at war over what kind of care dad yeah. gets. But you those were some pretty um savvy things that you guys were doing. Where'd you come up with with that 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 like those sort of legal things you did there at the end? Someone help you come up with those ideas? It was the advocate in the hospital. Um and and partly my mom. My mom is she's got a good head on her shoulders. Uh and she's she knew to ask. She wanted to make sure. She's like, look, I don't have a power of attorney. What do I do to get something in place so I can make these decisions? And the chaplain was wonderful. Uh, I would say he was one of our biggest cheerleaders down there. Uh, thank goodness for him. And so the chaplain uh, was the one that said, hey, let me see what I can do. He even went down to the, um, to the COVID unit in our stead and, and got the signatures needed. My dad signed it. So my dad was cognitive enough to, to sign. And, um, he wanted mom to be able to have that decision-making for him. Uh, so the chaplain was amazing. The advocate was amazing. I really felt like we did have somebody working for us. I felt like the, the COVID unit was a different story just because um, all they did was keep repeating CDC protocol uh, over and over again. So my dad was begging for his alternative supplements. They said, well, you can send them, we'll pass them through the pharmacist, but we don't know if they'll get approved. Uh, the pharmacist, of course, denied it, said that it would, the supplements that my dad wanted, uh, which were not vitamins, were not herbs, were not anything that would interact negatively with a prescription. However, um, the pharmacist de determined that that it could potentially interact neg negatively. So, um, so the pharmacist declined that, sealed it up. 
uh, did keep it with his belongings, but wouldn't let him have it. And um, no ivermectin, right? No ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine? No, we asked for our right to try. Uh, Apparently, there was an executive order signed by Trump stating that we have the right to try ivermectin. Uh, That was denied. It was ignored. Uh, And they said, no, it's too late in stages. And this is uh, one of the ways they got around it is uh, every time we asked for the H, uh, what is it? I never know how to pronounce it. Hydroxychloroquine? Hydroxychloroquine. Um, When we asked for that, they said, oh, it's the the symptoms are too far advanced. It wouldn't work. Uh, Same thing with our, and then the nurse was quite intrigued that we asked for ivermectin. He goes, Oh yeah, I'm familiar with ivermectin. I give that to my dog for worms. So he goes, but I'm curious as to why you want it. We said, look, we just want our right to try it. And uh, he goes, well, I'll talk to the, um, I'm trying to remember all the hospital terms, but he would talk to the nurse above him uh, that was overseeing the case. And they, of course, said no. They said, we have to follow CDC protocol. So uh, that just became the script. CDC protocol was just the script every time we talked to them. Do, do you, uh, what do you think the reason was? It, it seems to me like it's like, we don't want to be accountable for all these bad outcomes we're having, so we're just going to blame it on the CDC. Is that what it felt like to you? A little bit. And, um, and, and the other term that kept getting used was our hands are tied. Yes. Our hands are tied, Um, which I know well, having worked in customer service in a call center, that's what you say to a difficult customer. You say, I'm sorry, my hands are tied. I have to follow company policy. And that's just basically what they were doing with us. Uh, And and so it was very frustrating because nobody would deviate from the protocol. And we said, look, you're not treating the whole person. All you're doing is dealing with his oxygen. We know there's bigger issues. We had had blood work drawn before he went in and that the results came back and pointed to a couple of things. One, potentially diabetes. Another one, potentially um, the potential of cancer existing in the body that we might not have been aware of. And, um, And the concern that we had was had it metastasized and gone to his brain and that could have been expect- it affecting his cognitive abilities uh, where he was sundowning and things like that so quickly uh, and, and going from a fully functional uh, business owner to uh, these. And we said, look, you're not, you're not dealing with the whole person. You're only dealing with the oxygen. And they said, well, that's all we do. They said, we will not deal with any other issue in the body until we get his oxygen under control. And we said, well, um, that's unacceptable. <laughs> and so we spoke with, we did a, a Zoom call with the doctor and the palliative nurse. And they said, okay, uh, you do aware, you, you are aware that if you, if you take him out of the ICU, he could die in your care is how they put it. Uh, and I said, well, we're aware of that. And we're aware he can die in your care too. And they said, well, yes, that's true. And I said, well, I couldn't live with myself if I let him die in isolation. I said, he's, he's coming home. And we had had a family meeting prior to this conversation and the whole family was on board. And we all agreed that we did not want him in isolation and that, that that alone would kill him. If not what they were doing to him, 
in the ICU with the drugs and the sedation, that the isolation alone would kill him. He, he needed to be around people. And so they pushed back and pushed back, but they finally said, okay, well, uh, they were not kind about it. I mean, they, they acted kind as they spoke with us, but the words were not kind. They said, uh, well, you are aware that there's a potential that he could die as soon as he arrives to your home. And there's also the potential he could die in transport before he even gets home. Yeah, so they're just like ramping up the scenarios, the fear scenarios to completely paralyze you with fear that it's on your it's on your heads if he dies in the car on the way home. How how truly, how truly yeah. subhuman the, this story is. And yeah. It was very cold. It was very cold. And yeah. And they they did transport him by hospital. They kept him on the oxygen. But as they were preparing to bring him home, they had told us, well, we're gonna prepare the we're gonna prepare the oxygen tanks. We're gonna make sure everything's ready for you. He's on a feeding tube. He had agreed to go on the feeding tube because of the BiPAP, uh, just to make it easier. They said, we can't take the BiPAP off of you long enough to have you eat a meal without your saturation dropping. So they they asked him, would you agree to go on a feeding tube so that you can get the nourishment uh, without removing the mask? And he did agree to that. He said, yes. So yeah, but they're, he, they're talking to a patient who's alone and who is on psychotropic drugs and in the case of your dad probably really sensitive to all these drugs i mean his body is just not used to that some people can take on all kinds of meds because they do lots of meds in their life but he had none and yes. so then, then they they got him to agree to it but there was nobody there to kind of help vet that idea so he goes from going for for a jog and changing a tire in his car by 5 a.m to a feeding tube and the bipap machine and now, so you're going to, you're going to bring him home and they, they are supposed to be transitioning him in a certain way. And that's not really what happened. Was it? That's not happened. They said they would be bringing tanks, oxygen. They would be, they would make sure he had his BiPAP so he could get his full 70 liters of oxygen. They said he would come back with the feeding tube. Um, they, they had um, a hospital bed delivered and assembled for us. Uh, that was the only thing they followed through on was the hospital bed. We did not get a bedpan. We did not get a urinal. Uh, they removed his feeding tube. They uh, they said, well, we're not able. They said there is no home care that will provide 70 liters of oxygen. So the most we can get you is 10 liters of oxygen. And so they had that delivered an hour before he arrived. Um, and they had a respiratory therapist there showing us how to operate the machine, which was quite scary, uh, especially our family having chosen alternative care for so many years. Uh, we didn't operate an oxygen machine. We didn't know what to do. And, and it, it was a very scary place to be, you know, when, when your loved one is... when his life is in your hands, it's very difficult. Sure. That was so scary. So devastating. He, 
He would have wanted to come home though. You were pretty sure of that. He, he was he was home. Tell us about the final few moments of Jerry's life. He got home and they expected him to die immediately as soon as as soon as they took the BiPAP off of him. Um, it took three paramedics to get him into the uh, hospital bed to transfer him. And uh, the the way the the way the house floor plan was, the hallway was at such a weird length and angle they couldn't get the um, whatever you call it <laughs> the stretcher the stretcher they couldn't get the stretcher down the hall and turn the corner into the room so they they had to lift him with the oxygen tanks out of the stretcher in the living room and carry him down the hall and um and into into the bed uh they did not place him very well uh, and he kept sliding down he was not comfortable at this stage within three days time he wasn't able to speak to us he could barely lift his hands um so when he went in, he was talking and, and the thing he kept saying to us in the emergency room is they're going to escalate, they're going to escalate. And, and then the first conversation I had with my dad, when he got settled in the ICU was, I told you they were going to escalate. And I, I said, dad, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? And he said, yes, I forgive you. I said, we just, we needed to get you care because you were scaring us um, because he was sundowning and he wasn't able to take water. He was, he had gotten so dehydrated and we couldn't get him nourishment on our own. So we had to do something. And, um, and so after a few days of being able to communicate with him over Zoom, and him talking and the nurse saying that, man, I can't get Jerry to stop talking. He just talks and talks and talks. And then as soon as they started sedating him, that was the end of it. He he couldn't talk anymore. So when they took the mask off of him, they watched. And they just stood back and watched, waiting for him to die. And um, the hospice nurse pointed down to his feet and said, do you see the marks on his legs? I said, yes. She says, that's oxygen deprivation. So I grabbed the cream I had and I just started rubbing my dad's feet and my dad's legs. And the color started returning. And they had put a nasal cannula for his oxygen. He did not, they had brought him a CPAP, but he it was hurting him. He didn't want it. And the hospice nurse said, look, we're here to make him comfortable. And if he doesn't want that mask, he doesn't have to wear it. So I had had the forethought before my dad arrived to ask the respiratory therapist for a nasal cannula. And so he, he had kind of argued with me about it, but decided, okay, well, we'll go ahead and leave it for him. <laughs> and so he helped me switch out the mask to the nasal cannula. And um, they just waited. They just expected him to die right there. And uh, I kept working on his feet and legs. And they said, oh, my gosh, it's a miracle. They said he didn't die. He's, his color's returning. He looks good. He looks peaceful. Um, they just started calling him a miracle. Uh, and so there was some hope there. Uh, and then, then they said, okay, we're going to leave for the night. We'll be back in the morning. 
And that's when we realized they hadn't even left us a bedpan. <laughs> and dad was trying to use the bathroom and we couldn't lift him. And I'm running in a snowstorm before close to the nearest Walgreen to go pick up any urinal. I grabbed everything off the shelf. <laughs> I said, my dad needs something. They sent him home to die and he's alive and he needs to go to the bathroom. And so uh, that was kind of our lives for the next day and a half. Uh, and uh, 3.30 in the morning on the 12th, he um, he started gasping for air and I could tell he was choking on something. And the thing before the nurses left that day, I, he started coughing up a bunch of black, horrible, disgusting mucus. And they said, oh, that's natural. That's normal thing for somebody who's on the, been on the BiPAP machine. They said, it's okay. We'll show you how to get it out. And so they kind of walked us through some of that. And we kept trying to give my dad water. And he would draw a picture on a whiteboard of a cup with a straw. And we would give him the water in syringes about this. You can see that about, about that thick. About the width of a straw. Smaller than the width of a straw. And um, we would stick it in his cheek and give him two syringes and he would help put his hand up like that was too much. And he, he couldn't handle anymore. And then he would desperately want more. And we just, we couldn't get him hydrated. No feeding tube, no IV. He couldn't eat. He was choking on everything. And so um, mom and I had been taking shifts watching over him, making sure he had everything. We were giving him all the supplements we knew to give him. And um, he, uh, he was really excited when we started giving him the supplements he had asked for in the hospital. We showed it to him and he started clapping his hands. And uh, uh, the, we couldn't get him to utter a word, but on that second day home, he... He kept trying to say something to my mom and she said, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to say? And he managed to utter the words, JJ, which is my brother's name. And um, mom says, do you want to talk to JJ? I'll get him on the phone. So we got my brother on the phone on speaker. And as soon as he heard my brother's voice, he started clapping and his eyes got real big. He's very expressive. And his eyes got real big and he smiled and he started clapping, but he couldn't say anything to JJ. So JJ just talked to him, told him about the grandkids and told him stories and they hung up. And it was that next morning, which was my brother's birthday at about 6.30 that my mom um, went to give him a kiss and tell him she loved him. And he just stopped breathing. glad that that was the last thing that he experienced is your mom giving him a kiss so do you feel that jerry would want you to tell his story in case someone else could benefit from it you decided to take this story public and yeah. share what happened to your family i think that the way he was sent home and the way he was treated in the hospital and uh 
he was he was pretty awake for about what was going on in 2020 and he knew what he didn't want. Yeah, he expressed it because he wasn't he wasn't sedated and paralyzed like everybody else in the rooms next to him. Right. So he spoke up about it and he told you about it and I don't think that's by accident. I don't think that's by accident. I think um, you know, you have a whole bunch of states right now. I don't know because I'm not in all 50 states and I don't have time to read every piece of legislation in front of every state right now. But I know of several that are trying to pass laws and are successfully passing laws that this CDC protocol that your dad was a victim of is law for the next two years, that they can't treat anybody who looks like COVID whatsoever in any different way than what your dad got. And so that to me makes it that much more important to tell your dad's story. Yes. Because there are going to be people who are going to have to fight it, or they're going to have to not walk through the doors of an emergency room in the first place, which I think approximately hundred percent of us would do what you did. We should be able to trust an emergency room. We should be able to trust a hospital. You know, yes. I mean, it probably is going to milk your parents' savings within an inch of their, their, its life to pay for the horrible care that he got. So what do you think that in, in summary, what do you think that your dad would want other people to know? Let's, let's say we're talking to family members, people with, I I have two 78 year old parents. What, what would your dad want the families of seniors to know? Oh boy. You know, he was such an advocate. Um, he definitely would want this story told. My mom and I discussed this before I came on this interview and she agreed. Yes, he would want this told. Um, I think my dad would say, advocate, advocate for yourself, fight for yourself. Um, I'm certain my dad would say, stay out of the hospitals. I'm certain. Um, and, um, you know, my husband and I have spoken about it several times since this happened. And I told my husband, if I get sick, don't take me in. I'd rather die at home with all of you guys. I don't want to be in a hospital. Um, and that's a conversation I never thought we'd have. <laughs> but, you know, um, I believe that wholeheartedly knowing what my dad said to me when we took him in the emergency room that he he kept he knew he knew what they would do he wasn't blind to it he did not want to be there and um had i to do it again i would have let my dad just stay home because to me what keeps me awake at night is the amount of torture he endured, the amount of isolation he endured. And the loss of dignity for a man who, I mean, he's given so much to this world. He's given so much and he's fought down at the Capitol for parents' rights. He's gone to hospital rooms and prayed for people to come back from the dead. I mean, my dad has witnessed people come back from the dead. And 
he knew the state that these hospitals had gotten to, and he knew where our particular state of Colorado was. And he knew that the hospital was the last place that we needed to be. And I, I hate to say that because I want to be able to say to people, you can trust your doctors. But sadly, when you hear them all say the same script, my hands are tied. My hands are tied. You no longer have somebody who is practicing for the care of the patient. I haven't, you know, I haven't talked to a family yet who didn't get told my hands are tied. Yeah, it's, it's a script. It's a script, and that's the only way I know to describe it. And well, that it's, is, it's a, a cop-out. I, I taught management communications, upper division at Merritt School of Management at BYU for many years. And I told my students, if you're going to say, I'm sorry, my hands are tied, or that's just our policy, I'm going to find you. And I'm going to remind you that you were taught that if it's your policy, you should be able to defend it. That's a weak, lame excuse for it bad is. behavior, basically. It is. It is. <laughs> I agree. Well, Joanne, I'm so sorry for everything that you've gone through. And thank you for, for our sakes, um, being willing to take your pain and make some purpose out of it. I really believe that your dad's story needed to be told. And that there are people who got heard the little clues, all the great clues you gave along the path that your family had to learn the hard way that will bless some other people's lives and maybe save some lives. So thank you so much and God bless you and your family. I hope so. Thank you, Rob. And I appreciate what you're doing. 